Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Jesus wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In the next few verses, Jesus talks about little children. Chapter in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the any Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're listening to Jesus as he speaks about two closely related topics marriage and divorce, and the place of children within the kingdom of God. Before we dive into the meaning and the application of this passage for us, I'd like to share that it's my intention to be sensitive to the painful experiences that will come to mind for many of us as we walk through this passage. While we will engage these sensitive issues from a biblical framework, it's my hope and prayer that truth will be spoken and yet grace will abound as well. I hope we don't miss the irony as Jesus begins his final journey towards Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles open or if you want to open them up to see where Chris started it out, Mark describes his journey. He's passing directly through the area where John the Baptist conducted his work and prepared the way for the one coming after him, namely Jesus. And once again, we find in this description of where he is that the Pharisees are up to their old tricks. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they asked Jesus. When they come and ask this question, when they come to test Jesus, is this isn't just some theological debate. It's a setup. It's a loaded question. Either way, you see, Jesus is seemingly doomed. The timing of the Pharisees' question, first of all, couldn't be more calculated. Again, if you see that description that Mark gives us, if again, if you recognize where Jesus is, he's right in King Herod's backyard. 
Remember a few chapters back, Mark told us how the Pharisees and the Herodians started to conspire to destroy Jesus. So, Jesus, as you sit in Herod's backyard, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? If Jesus supports his cousin's his cousin John's teaching about divorce, you'll recall that John the Baptist previously condemned Herod and Heroditus for their divorce and for Herod for entering into an adulterous marriage and he later lost his head for his troubles. If Jesus supports his cousin John's teaching about divorce, then the Pharisees figure that maybe Herod will have Jesus executed too. Problem solved. On the other hand, if Jesus doesn't agree with John, then a wedge has been created between Jesus and John's teaching. Either Jesus is the moral compromiser, in which case, why continue to listen to him? Or John was just over the top in his ministry and now should be discredited. Pretty insidious, isn't it? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let's put the question the Pharisees asked Jesus into some further context. In Jesus' day, everyone agreed that Moses allowed for divorce based on one scripture. The only passage, in fact, in the Old Testament that addresses the question. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24 allowed a man to divorce a woman if he found something objectionable. Other translations read shameful. Others read indecent. A man could divorce his wife if he found something objectionable, shameful, or indecent about her. The open question, as it often is with the Bible, was the application of this teaching from Moses. What exactly did Moses mean by shameful or indecent? What constitutes an objectionable grounds for divorce? Back then, and I find this very compelling, back then, as still today, the interpretation of the Bible was necessary and it was divided. Just believe what the Bible says. Many of us have heard that before. I find it compelling that even back in Jesus' day, that just didn't work. Just believe what the Bible says. Sounds great in theory, but it's not so easy in practice. And this is what's going on. The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to weigh in, to make a choice in the midst of the interpretive debate between two different schools of rabbinical thought about this issue. On the one hand, followers of the great Rabbi Hillel interpreted objectionable to mean anything that displeased the husband. Anything from disliking her cooking, she burned the toast, to how she kept house, to being argumentative, to anything that annoyed or embarrassed the husband, it was all fair game as grounds for granting a divorce. Opposed to that interpretation was the school of Shammai, another great rabbi who taught that divorce was to be strictly limited, granted only as a result of something morally objectionable, like adultery. Well, Jesus, instead of being tripped up by the Pharisees, turns the tables and asks them to answer their own question by taking them back to Scripture, to Deuteronomy 24, in fact. What did Moses command you? They answered Jesus, Moses approved of it. Well, not really, Jesus said. Moses permitted divorce due to the hardness of your hearts. Hardness of heart is an expression we see a lot in the Scriptures, 
It refers, this idea of hardness of heart, it refers to when we insist upon handling something ourselves. When we're pretty militant about our way and thereby ignore or resist what God is revealing about that situation, his way. The hardness of heart, this willful resistance towards God that Jesus points to is evidenced right in front of him by the Pharisees. As they want to hold up and debate the exception, the grounds for divorce, while conveniently overlooking the Lord's true intentions for marriage. And that's why, as you heard Chris read, Jesus goes back to a higher authority than Deuteronomy 24, a deeper order. He goes back to first principles, God's original design for creation. Quoting from the first two chapters of Genesis, Jesus stresses our Father's intent and purpose for marriage. It's about bringing a man and a woman, two different but complementary and equal genders, together and bringing, each bringing a gift to the other and each receiving from the other. Marriage seeks, according to the way Jesus points us to Genesis, the greatest unity possible between a man and a woman, the unity of becoming one flesh. And it's more than just a poetical description of the sexual dimension of marriage. One, mentions, one flesh signifies the intimacy and vulnerability of the relationship, of two lives becoming shared, two persons becoming one. Marriage is the ultimate expression of self-giving love, the love that is at the heart of God. But the love promised in marriage will not always be something that spouses feel like giving to each other. The love and unity intended for and aspired to between a husband and wife is not about whether or not the marriage works, as we often sometimes say. Self-giving love and the unity that comes from a man and a woman bearing their souls to each other is the work of marriage. That's why Jesus stresses in this teaching from Genesis, God's intended intention for marriage is a lifelong commitment. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Deuteronomy 24 is not a commandment from God. It's a concession to weakness. Moses faced the reality. He was faced with the reality of sin. Husbands who were abusing the covenant of marriage by treating their wives with contempt, cruelty, and sometimes even blatant abuse based on any hint or whim of displeasure and dissatisfaction with them. So Moses, Jesus says, made an allowance for divorce in order to reveal publicly what was going on privately, the rejection of God's law, the violation of the marriage covenant. If you will, Moses granted divorce as the lesser of two evils. A separation of what God designs and purposes to be for life rather than the perpetuation of a lie, the continued abuse of God's intention for marriage. Unfortunately, the granted exception has not elevated the honoring of marriage in Jesus' day. What's also between the lines here through the Pharisees' question is that exception has been used as a loophole for continued disrespect and injustice. Did you notice how the Pharisees answered Jesus' question? Do you notice the pro-husband interpretation of Deuteronomy 24? Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. In that culture, 
As many of us know, women relied upon men, fathers, and later husbands for their security and income. A woman without a husband and without a means of explaining why she was unmarried could be exposed to great risk. A certificate of divorce was provided to protect her from being victimized and would enable her to be free to remarry so that a new husband might provide for her. That was the idea in theory. But in practice, despite this provision, a man divorcing a woman often amounted to a death sentence or at least a life of poverty, begging, or worse, prostitution. After all, a piece of paper doesn't protect you from rumors and slander. Divorced women were perceived as damaged goods. So what I want you to see is Jesus' teaching against divorce, his high elevation of marriage, is an expression of his compassion for those who can be betrayed by a spouse's unfaithfulness. In essence, Jesus is saying, you don't just send her away. Providing a certificate for your wife does not get you off the hook for not loving, for not honoring her. Jesus is upholding the respect of women in demanding the commitment of marriage be taken seriously by men. You might also know that the common interpretation of the law in Jesus' day was that an unfaithful husband wasn't seen as committing adultery against his own wife if he slept with a married woman. He was seen as committing adultery against the husband of the woman with whom he slept. Also, a woman had, did not have the same recourse as a man. Only men could institute divorce. Yet if you paid attention, when Jesus speaks privately with his disciples, and you may have missed this, it's quite startling, Jesus corrects both of these interpretations with the disciples when, if you see it there, he places both the husband and the wife under the exact same legal and moral obligations. If you didn't catch it, Jesus says, when a woman divorces her husband, she is committing adultery. For us, we go, yeah, okay, that is a radical thing to say in the first century. To speak of a woman divorcing her husband doesn't happen. Again, the implication of Jesus' teaching is a powerful statement for the dignity and equality of women in marriage as not being the property of their husbands, but rather equal partners with them. And clearly, it's a bit of a shock for the disciples because, as you heard, they are such a shock to hear Jesus so completely disagree with a widely held rabbinic view. And what Mark tells us that Jesus says to them in private, if you have your Bible open, you see it, it's disturbed many inside and outside the church for centuries, especially if you sit here today and you've been divorced. When he speaks to the disciples, he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Seemingly, Jesus speaks as if divorce, legal or otherwise, does not end a marriage in God's sight. However, what I want to suggest to you this morning is I believe Jesus is using hyperbole here, a rhetorical overstatement to drive a point, just as he did with us last week. The use of hyperbole doesn't dismiss the message. It pushes the extreme as a way of challenging us to examine, again, the main point, which is whether we are living up to the principle being stated. In this case, are we respecting and honoring our Father's purpose for marriage? Because here's the thing. 
as we confront this together. On the one hand, we cannot accept the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age, a lax spirit that seemingly goes back to the time of Moses, which undervalues the significance of marriage and embraces the possibility of divorce far too easily. It's traditional for a bride and groom to make their pledge to love each other by saying, I do. But honestly, they ought to say, I will. Because their mutual oath is both a promise and an act of will. Beloved, we exist at a time where we all know, or we are told, that there is a 50% divorce rate within the church. And that suggests too many of us enter into marriage too lightly and don't take it seriously enough once we're there. Beloved, a husband and wife don't just drift apart. It isn't that things were fine when we were living together, but the moment we got married, everything went wrong. Honoring the promise to love, to be one flesh, is more an act of will than a matter of desire. It takes a lifetime to figure that out, to discover that truth, to have that unique experience of grace, and ending the discovery of that truth. Ending such an intimate union is a tragic thing. It is a sin. But like all sins... It is not beyond the forgiveness of Christ. I know that the reality is that divorce is a fact of life for many here this morning. For those among us who have caused or initiated divorce through our actions, know that while we must do all we can to repent and make amends for the damage we've caused, God's grace is sufficient to bring forgiveness as well as to enable us in time to make peace with our spouse and move on. Please hear me when I tell you Jesus graphically summoning us to honor the commitment of marriage is not the same thing as Jesus denying that God recognizes and blesses the legitimacy of new marriages. While we are expected to do our best in terms of our commitment to marriage, and while one person working hard can often lead to the restoration of a marriage, the avoidance of divorce is not guaranteed. One spouse, as we well know, has his or her own will and can choose to opt out of responsibility for a marriage. What I'm saying is that in the church, we've often taken this text And we've interpreted it in a way that I think is wrong. To make matters more difficult for those who are divorced against their own will. To frown upon or attempt to break up the possibility of people who have been divorced to remarry. As we've often done in the church, beloved, it undermines the grace of the gospel. And so I want to say, for those of us among us who are victims of adultery or desertion. For those of us who have suffered violence, emotional spiritual, physical, or otherwise at the hands of our former spouse that led to divorce. For those of us who because of such circumstances have been shamed or excluded or denied the grace that is only God's to give. On behalf of the church, I apologize. As a follower of Jesus, please hear me when I assure you the grace of Jesus is yours. 
The forgiveness, the peace, the blessing to heal and move on with your life is yours in Christ. As Jesus talks with his disciples here, he says nothing about the rejected partner in a divorce and his or her remarriage. He seems to be speaking specifically against those who leave their spouse for another. His point is that the permissibility of divorce does not offer a legal loophole to justify sacrificing a spouse to satisfy one's desires or ambitions. And on the heels of this provocative teaching, on the heels of a challenge by the Pharisees, Jesus now deals with his disciples' improper attitude toward children who are being brought before him. From the parallel to this encounter in Luke, we know that these were small children, Toddlers, even infants, Jesus could easily lift up and take in his arms. And it was commonplace for Jews to seek a rabbinic blessing for their children. It's only natural, therefore, that parents would seek to have Jesus bless their children as well. The disciples, as you heard, however, tried to stop the parents from doing this, seemingly believing, seemingly because they are being bypassed. The families didn't get permission from Jesus' entourage first. In response, did you catch it? Jesus is indignant, furious even. And if you were with us last week, you kind of understand why. Because not all that long ago, just back in chapter 9, Jesus had protectively wrapped his arms around a small child in front of his disciples, probably in Peter's house, in order to make a powerful statement about inclusion and greatness in the kingdom. And this is what they took away from the lesson? I tell you the truth, Jesus says. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus directs these words to his disciples who continue to miss his point. Our Father bestows his kingdom upon the open, the helpless, those who can do nothing to gain entrance, because entrance into the kingdom of God is not something that can be earned or gained on the basis of human effort or merit. And if being part of the kingdom is not something we can earn, if it is only something we can be given, something we receive, the disciples have no right to prevent the parents from bringing their children to Jesus. Now that's the passage. Within Jesus' teaching here about these very specific topics that for some of us hit close to home, both culturally and personally, I believe there are Two general principles about discipleship. Discipleship, as I hear it in this passage, is not about finding loopholes or creating roadblocks. Following Jesus is about living together by grace and acting together in love. Let me repeat that just one more time. Discipleship, as I see it in this passage, is not about finding loopholes or creating roadblocks. Roadblocks. Following Jesus is about living together by grace and acting together in love. It was not without some irony that I was preparing, as I was preparing this sermon, that certain things happened out in the world that to me seemed to intersect with the insights that I see in this passage. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, earlier this week, World Vision a Christian charity known for asking its donors to sponsor a hungry child, made a change in its hiring practices by agreeing to hire Christians in legal same-sex marriages. Immediately, upon announcement of this decision, opinion was greatly divided 
within the Christian community. It quickly became apparent that there was no perceived ability to straddle both sides and find common ground. In the midst of this debate, Christians found themselves having to choose sides in order to to prove or defend their faithfulness to the Bible. Thousands of Christians flooded social media, not only with their opposition to this change, but more significantly to publicly declare their cancellation of child sponsorships, as well as their immediate cutting off of support to relief and mercy efforts through World Vision. As all of this went down, I could not help but see parallels and ask myself, not what would Jesus do, but rather what would Jesus say? Jesus, should Christian organizations hire gay Christians who are legally married? What does the Bible say? Homosexuality is a sin. We must cut ourselves off from sin. The logic, by the way, behind this interpretation of Scripture is that if world vision is engaging in sin by hiring openly gay married Christians, then if I work with or support world vision by sponsoring a child or donating funds to their efforts to help those in need, I am complicit in what I believe is their unrepentant practice of sin. But let's just go back to the shorter version. Homosexuality is a sin. That's what the Bible says. We must cut ourselves off from sin. I want you to think about this. I'm not saying that I know this definitively, but I want, if nothing else, for you to reflect on the application of this passage in something that's right smack dab in front of us. Many people have, maybe you would do exactly and point to a a scripture like that. But here, in this case, as the Pharisees did exactly that on the matter of divorce, Jesus, as often as his case, pointed back to a broader principle. He went back to a deeper order, the order of creation. And what I'm suggesting is, Jesus, in the midst of that answer, would he possibly not point to a broader principle rather than a scriptural loophole? In other words, rather than quoting a couple of verses from the law, didn't Jesus, when he was asked about the law, sum it up? And how did he sum up the law? How did he say all the law was fulfilled? You know this, we all know this scripture. The law, the entirety of it. Every jot and tittle can be summed up this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is summed up in this. Can we imagine Jesus in that response giving us that principle as he does here with the Pharisees? Because that principle isn't just something Jesus says. What he points to, if we really dig into our scriptures, is the Old Testament prophets, not to mention Jesus, repeatedly cry out against our doing violence to each other through loopholes of putting off our relationship with, our putting, of putting our relationship with the law above our relationship with our neighbor. Specifically, the Old Testament prophets and Jesus both call out being hard-hearted in our neglect and injustices against the poor and the marginalized. In other words, in not loving our neighbor and thereby not loving God. We ought to reread Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Discipleship isn't about loopholes. If we're separating ourselves from another person to avoid being complicit in their sin, we aren't being righteous, we are being sinful. If we are forced to choose between loving and serving another person, whoever they may be, whatever they might or might not believe, and however they may or may not be living, 
If we have to choose between that and standing up for our beliefs, our doctrine, and our theology, Jesus makes it clear there is no loophole around the command to love and serve our neighbor. Beloved, here Jesus exposes how the Pharisees pride themselves in defending the law, in their priding themselves in defending the law, they've not only misinterpreted Moses, They've set up a system by which men can freely divorce their wives on the grounds of their own discomfort and inconvenience while ignoring the larger principle of compassion, mercy, and justice. The issue this past week is whom exactly is being impacted by making a statement in dropping one's support of World Vision sponsorships, in particular, and ministries in general. One cuts off support, and world vision doesn't suffer as much as those being ministered to do. If the argument is that we don't want to consciously or otherwise support or endorse anything we believe is against Scripture, the question we have to ask ourselves from Scripture is, do we maintain the same level of scrutiny in terms of our other organizational relationships and partnerships? And you know as well as I do that generally the answer is no, we don't. We don't make sacrifices to our own daily comfort and convenience for the sake of making a similar statement with organizations that violate our beliefs and convictions. It's easier to cut off support to a child who we're supporting or a well that's being dug than to say, I'm not going to shop at that store or I'm not going to go to that place because they violate what I believe Scripture teaches. And we need to think about the implications of this and ask ourselves, which is the greater sin? After all, which is the greater sacrifice to make? The one that hurts others or the one that hurts me? Jesus called us. This is what we've been looking at all throughout Lent. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves to follow him. If we're going to make sacrifices and cut off things, Jesus tells us to cut off our own arms, our legs, and our eyes, not to draw lines in the sand at the expense of the people he came to serve. Many of you know this new story. You know that less than 48 hours later from making this announcement, World Vision reversed course, called the decision a mistake, and pleaded for forgiveness. Pleaded for forgiveness not from Jesus, but from its donors. Beloved, last week, the disciples were rebuked for pursuing greatness through power. They were chided for believing their fellowship defines the sphere of where God's work can be done and his blessings known. John spoke up for the rest when he said, Lord, we saw others casting out a demon in your name and they were not with us, one of us, and so we stopped them. And Jesus didn't say, amen. Jesus said, no, don't stop him. Whoever isn't against us is for us. In our passage today, Jesus gets angry at his disciples because they create an unnecessary roadblock for the children to come before him. The disciples insist on believing they form the wall of partition between others in the kingdom. Beloved, if we disagree with what another person believes about what the Bible says, about what the Bible means about sexuality, is our disagreement enough of a foundation to believe to say or to promote that those who disagree are not my brothers and sisters? That they don't believe in the Bible and therefore they don't follow Jesus? 
Are we really comfortable scripturally? And when I say that, I mean in a I'd stand before Jesus and defend my position way. Are we really comfortable scripturally to equate with where one stands in terms of the issue of sexuality as a litmus test of one's salvation and commitment to Christ? Isn't this a form of blocking the entrance to the kingdom? Of standing in the way of another person coming before Jesus by judging them as less sincere, less devoted, less worthy than us? We're Lutherans. We champion ourselves on saying that Scripture teaches us we are saved by grace alone. Beloved, if we are saved by grace, if we live, die, and live eternally by grace, how can we operate outside of that grace? If we can't earn or work our way into the kingdom, as we saw in this passage, if the kingdom is given to us, if we can only receive the kingdom with the empty hands of faith, on what basis do we stand in front of the door and say, you can't come in here? To be clear, I am not saying to ignore or dismiss our disagreements. We can and we should still be talking about where we disagree as to what the scriptures say so that together the Holy Spirit can draw us closer to him and to each other. What I am suggesting is the minute we convince ourselves we have to defend God, that the validity of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ, the relevancy of the church rises and falls based upon us, aren't we in elevating human wisdom and work, sacrificing grace, and second-guessing its sufficiency for our lives? In other words, aren't we violating the very cornerstone of our faith in Christ when we find ourselves acting in the name of Jesus without any reservation or possibility of error. Beloved, I'm telling you something you already know, and yet we don't talk about this. Sincerely devoted, biblically based, Christ-centered, earnestly kingdom-serving followers of Jesus have throughout the history of the church disagreed and still do on many different interpretations of how to love and serve God. The list, as we all know, is exhaustive, limited not only to our view of the sacraments or styles of worship, but theology about end times and how salvation works. Not who is responsible for salvation, but how salvation works, as well as the roles of men and women in marriage, family, and the community of faith. Many of the items on this exhaustive list were in a previous generation of the church, a generation you grew up in. They were, in a previous generation of the church, lines of demarcation and division between brothers and sisters and communities in Christ. My grandfather was raised Presbyterian. My grandmother it remains Catholic. When they got married, they couldn't get married in the church. They had to get married in the lobby. And his parents wept while her parents wept. Her sister, who's still alive, who's over 80 years old, who's pretty much a nun, functionally, continues to pray not only for her grandmother, but for her grandson who became a Lutheran pastor that I will come back to the true faith. <laughs> Beloved, these issues split families. Many of you lived through that. They split marriages. They split friendships. As each was held up, each of these things on the list was held up at one time as an indicator of one's commitment to the Bible, of one's faithfulness to Jesus, as one's authenticity as a believer of the gospel. 
And yet today, with a few exceptions, we've managed to reach a point where we can worship and work together as followers of Jesus, even though we, in some cases very strongly, disagree still about these issues. Our fellowship here at Grace is far from perfect or in agreement as to what the scriptures mean, let alone how they apply to the specific circumstances of our lives. And yet, we still continue, we still manage to strive together to acknowledge our mutual baptism in Christ, we confess our sins to each other, we relish God's forgiveness together, we hold each other up in accountability to live out of the grace we have been given, and ultimately to share the truth of all these gifts that are ours, thanks to Jesus, in loving service to others without condition, or expectation. If this is true, if this can happen, and if this is where we've ended up, and likely will so again when it comes to how we read our Bibles, do we have to agree on the issue of sexuality in order to worship and work together? We can worship and work with those with whom we disagree theologically. In fact, our witness as followers of Jesus is the most powerful and compelling when we do. Because that's what the Jesus whom our lives belong to, that's what the Jesus whom we follow each and every day taught and teaches us to do. Whether it's a tax collector or a prostitute or a Samaritan or a Pharisee or a Roman centurion, an Ethiopian eunuch or a liar like Peter or a murderer like Paul, Jesus worked with all of them and he worked through all of them. If Jesus can do this, we can and we should too. Beloved, being a follower of Jesus means we let go of loopholes and we don't build roadblocks. If we really want to take a stand for the kingdom, then let's really do something bold. Something that requires us to rely on God's grace rather than our own logic, our own effort, and our own righteousness. By the grace of God, let's follow Jesus in mutually submitting and working together with people with whom we disagree. I don't think we realize, and I am not saying that we still can't disagree and we should not still be in the scriptures debating and discussing in a, in a productive way, but do we, do we understand, you who have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, are you listening to what just happened, to the witness that we've just given? Why would anyone want to be a part of any church when we eat our own? Why would anyone want to follow a Jesus who ultimately people get online and proudly say, I stopped sponsoring children. I blocked their way to the kingdom because I stood up for scripture. Hear the inconsistency in that statement in and of itself. Beloved, the next generation, it has always been said the church is one generation from extinction. We are contributing to that extinction by instead of following Jesus, Feeling the need to continually defend Jesus. Jesus requires no defense. We're going to come to Holy Week, and one of the most significant things about Holy Week is when Jesus is at his final moments, he refuses to give a defense for himself. Jesus had every opportunity, by word and by power, to defend his teaching, his understanding, his proclaim, proclamation of the kingdom, that he was the Messiah, and Jesus chose not to defend himself. And yet, generations and generations and generations after, we get rabid, that we have to defend Jesus. 
We're going to come to a couple weeks and we're going to cry and we're going to celebrate that Jesus went to the cross for us and yet none of us seem to be comfortable with the fact that he's up there. Jesus didn't defend himself. He didn't ask us to defend him. He asked us to point to him, to witness to him. And beloved, if we want to do something bold, if we want to take a stand for Jesus, then by the grace of God, relying on the grace of God, let's love our enemies. Not by telling them that we can't work with them, but by giving each other the benefit of our doubts and our sharing our dependency upon Jesus. Let's show the world. Let's show the world how we can love and serve others despite our strong differences. Even as we work out, as we are working our salvation together, working it out with fear and trembling. I may have overstepped a bound, I don't know. But to me, I don't think it's a coincidence that God put us in Mark chapter 9 last week in Mark chapter 10 and in the midst of it had something like this came up. Many of you often come and say, you know, sometimes when you preach, I just don't understand how this applies to my life. Well, you got a lot to think about this week. (laughs) Amen.